0: Our call to worship this morning is from Isaiah 1, verse 18. Come now and let us reason together. saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Continue reading in the New Testament from Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. As we were convicted of our shortcomings and sins in light of the reading of God's holy law, we come now to Hebrews 9, which reminds us that the shedding of blood was made on the cross for sinners to receive remission of sin. So let us listen and read carefully and with faith. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made. The first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him, that did the service, perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and cardinal ordinances, imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being common high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh... How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, There must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while a testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. May God bless the reading of his holy, infallible, an errant word, beloved, our text for this morning's message comes from Hebrews nine verses eleven through fourteen. We'll consider those verses in the context. I'll just read them again, but Christ, being come high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. We'll consider Lord's Day 26 of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 26 of the Heidelberg Catechism. You can find that on page 55 in the back of the Psalter if you want to follow along. I'll just read that and give a brief explanation in the introduction as to what's going on in this Lord's Day, and then we'll move on into the words of our text. Lord's Day 26. Question 69, how art thou admonished and assured by holy baptism that the one sacrifice of Christ upon the cross is of real advantage to thee? Answer, thus, that Christ appointed this external washing with water, adding thereto this promise that I am as certainly washed by his blood and spirit from all the pollution of my soul, That is, from all my sins, as I am washed externally with water, by which the filthiness of the body is commonly washed away. Question 70. What is it to be washed with the blood and spirit of Christ? Answer. It is to receive of God the remission of sins freely, for the sake of Christ's blood which he shed for us by his sacrifice upon the cross, and also to be renewed by the Holy Ghost, and sanctified to be members of Christ, that so we may more and more die into sin and lead holy and unblameable lives. Question 71. Where has Christ promised that he will as certainly wash us by his blood and spirit as we are washed with the water of baptism? Answer. In the institution of baptism, which is thus expressed. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. This promise is also repeated where the Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Perhaps you've wrestled or are wrestling with this question. How can I be assured that my sins are forgiven? How can I know with a level of certainty that God has forgiven me? That all my sins are washed away, that I am in a place and a position of favor with God. Maybe as you wrestle with that question, you look inwards, you look at your feelings, and you say, well, I don't feel peace, therefore I must not be forgiven. But is it accurate to base assurance of forgiveness or assurance of pardon on what we feel? A feeling of peace that may be there one moment and gone the next. Is that a satisfactory foundation for the assurance of pardon? Or maybe you take inventory of your life and you say, Well, I've done a lot of good things. But I've really missed the mark so many times this past week. And and all those black marks against you begin to, to speak against you. And you say, how can you really be assured that you are forgiven of those sins? If you're a child of God, if you are really a believer, why are you still doing those very things that you know to be sin? Doubts begin to creep in. And so our good deeds or our bad deeds is also a poor foundation for the assurance of pardon. Pardon. So we can't ground our sense of forgiveness, our assurance of pardon on what we feel or on what we do. The gospel of Jesus Christ excludes those things as a foundation for the assurance of pardon. So how do I know that I'm forgiven? By faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. By resting on the objective foundation of the work in the person of Jesus Christ. Our knowledge of forgiveness comes from the gospel itself. The word of God as it comes to us with the promises, with the invitations of forgiveness. The assurances of pardon that if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And we can run through all the promises of scripture this morning. But all those promises are the only sure and steady foundation. They are that which testify to us of the assurance of pardon. Not in what we feel, not in what we do, but in what Christ has done and who Christ is as the great high priest for sinners. So it's through the preaching of the gospel that we receive assurance of pardon. And according to the measure of faith in the preaching of the gospel and the gospel itself and Christ out of his favor God has granted us two visual reminders of the gospel not just in the word but in the sacraments as well and that's where we come in the Heidelberg Catechism you had the introductory Lord's Day to the sacraments last Lord's Day and now we have the introductory Lord's Day to baptism itself the visual reminder of the gospel, of the objective work of Jesus Christ. The shedding of blood in which God comes and condescends to us. He comes very low and He, he gives us visual reminders of the realities of the gospel. And so this morning we want to go in behind this Lord's day, behind the realities, of uh, behind baptism and the water of baptism. And, and enter into the realities That these things picture for us. So this Lord's Day, Lord's Day 26, is not about who should be baptized in the first place. We'll get to that in Lord's Day 27. But Lord's Day 26 gets to the heart of how baptism should function in the Christian life. And how it provides assurance of pardon. A few Lord's days we'll have the sacrament of baptism administered. We'll have the baptismal font here with, with water. We'll have the parents standing at the front. We'll have the children in the arms of the parents. And so often the focus is there. But how should the sacrament of baptism function in the life of the person sitting in the pew when we see baptism administered? How should we respond? As we see what is done, as we see God coming to us and declaring his covenant with us and with our children, how should we interact with baptism as a sacrament? We're familiar with how to do this with the Lord's Supper, maybe less familiar with how to do this with Baptism. What is baptism designed to do for you and me? It's to provide assurance of pardon. That's what we see in our Lord's Day. Time and time again we see the words of assurance. As surely as. As certainly as. And so baptism is a visual. It's a picture of the promise of the gospel. That just as the water washes dirt off the skin. So surely the blood of Christ washes away my sin. At the heart of baptism lies blood theology. As we go behind baptism and, and look at the realities of what's happening there, there's, there is blood theology. Reminds us that blood is central to atonement. Blood is central to forgiveness. Blood is central to reconciliation with God, a holy God and a sinful human being, a sinful man, woman, or child. How are these two brought together? It's through the blood that was shed On the cross. So when the water is sprinkled on the forehead of the child, it's not about the child, it's about the blood. It's about the blood that cleanses from all sin. And this sacrament, and the promise, the assurance of pardon. Is grounded not in the inventions of man, but in the very Word of God. And that's where we turn this morning. We want to look at this blood theology behind baptism, behind as part and central to the gospel. How the blood of Christ cleanses and washes sinners from all their sin, and how the assurance of forgiveness and pardon is, is grounded in the gospel both in its written promises and its visual reminder of baptism. Our theme then this morning is assurance of pardon. Assurance of pardon through a superior high priest. Secondly, by his superior blood, and thirdly, with superior effects. And as we turn to the letter to the Hebrews, we need to understand that this is one extended sermon about the superiority of Jesus Christ as the high priest, as the mediator of the new covenant, as the mediator of the New Testament. And so the author to the Hebrews is at pains to, to elevate Christ because the Hebrews, what were they tempted to do? They were tempted to rest in the in the ceremonies. They were tempted to rest in the actions and the things that they could do, perhaps in the feelings that they had. They longed to go back to the Old Testament, back to the things they could see, that they could visualize. They wanted to settle for something less. And the gospel came to them in the letter to the Hebrews and said, don't settle for anything less than Christ. Christ. Because when you settle on Christ, you always settle for more. So the author to the Hebrews traces the blood theology of the Bible from the Old Testament sacrificial system and the tabernacle to the very person and work of Christ. And he does so by way of comparison and contrast. In Hebrews 9 and 10, It's between the Old Testament high priest and Jesus Christ as the superior and final high priest of his people. He's describing for us here in Hebrews 9 the, the tabernacle and all the things that were in the tabernacle. And then he gets to the priests. The priests ministered in the tabernacle. They ministered there sincerely. The high priest also. Verse 7. But into the second, into the Holy of Holies went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood. You see how blood was central to the the Old Testament sacrificial system. And what did he do with that blood? He offered it for himself and for the errors of the people. He sprinkled it on the mercy seat of of the lid of the atonement, which was under the wings of the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. Once every year refers to the Day of Atonement. It was a moment upon which the faithful Israelite would look to. He would look to and beyond that would look to the coming Christ. The moment in which blood was shed and sprinkled to provide forgiveness of sins. The high priest did this for the errors of the people and for himself. He entered where no man should come or could come apart from blood. Because children, you know the Holy of Holies was the place where God was. The place where the cloud of glory came down and rested where God's presence was. And it was there that the blood was sprinkled as symbolic of, of entrance into the presence of God where the high priest representing the people went and took the people with him as it were on his shoulders on the breastplate where he made sacrifice and sprinkled the blood but as glorious as that was it paled in significance to when Christ would come as the High Priest, the High Priest was operating in shadows and types. His work was temporary; it had to be repeated again and again, once every year. In Verses eight through ten, we read that it was a figure for the time then present; it's temporary. In which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. It was limited in its effectiveness. Stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and cardinal ordinances. It was ceremonies imposed until the time of Reformation. Again, an emphasis on the temporary types and shadows that were pointing ahead. It wasn't really the substance of what was to come. All of it pointed forward. And yet in the midst of it all, there was this blood that was central to the gospel in the Old Testament. The blood pointed ahead to the blood of Christ. To the work of the great high priest. And indeed, that's what we read in verse 11. But Christ contrasted with the Old Testament high priest, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Christ has come. Hebrews 9.24 gives further explanation. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Christ, the great high priest, carries his people with him into the heavenly tabernacle where his blood makes atonement for the sins of his people once and for all. Hebrews 9 and 10 gives us the picture of Christ sitting down. He doesn't have to walk into the Holy of Holies once a year. He's walked into the Holy of Holies and he sat down, indicating the finality of his sacrifice. It's finished, it's done. No longer to be repeated. Therefore, he is a superior high priest. He's entered into the heavens as the forerunner of his people, as Hebrews 12 tells us. Therefore, he is superior. The Old Testament high priest went into the tabernacle. A pattern of the heavenlies. A shadow of that which is to come, but Christ comes as the great high priest, as the superior high priest, into the reality of the heavenly tabernacle to make atonement for the sins of his people through the blood of the cross. And how do we connect this to baptism this morning? Well, the baptism is a ceremony. And if the Old Testament was full of ceremonies, then ceremonies and these things point us to something. The Old Testament pointed ahead. What does baptism do? It points us back to the high priestly work of Jesus Christ. It's not that we do anything in baptism. But baptism is a visual reminder that we have a high priest and so we go in behind the baptismal font, we go in behind the water, and what do we see there? A high priest who is seated in the heavens for us. One whose blood has been shed once for all, definitively for the sins of his people. And then what do we see? The water is sprinkled on the forehead of the baby. It is, it is Christ who comes to us through the sacrament. And he assures us of the forgiveness of our sins. That as surely as that water washes away the filth of the, of the flesh, so surely the work of the high priest is effective. He's forever made atonement for sin. His ministry in the heavenly tabernacle is far more glorious than that of the Old Testament high priest. And even baptism as part of the New Covenant, as part of the New Testament, is still but a faint picture of the reality that we have as believers. That Christ is now in the heavenly tabernacle. The reality that we need, the forgiveness of sins that we need is there for us. And that's what he assures us of, remission of sin through his superior high priest, as the superior high priest. And so we're not dependent on a ceremony. We are ultimately not dependent on a sacrament. Though as part of God's condescension, he gives us that. To speak to the senses, to remind us, to assure us of forgiveness, that he is a high priest who receives sinners. We're not dependent on an animal. We are not dependent on a mere man. We are dependent on Christ, our superior high priest. So when baptism is administered in a few weeks, how will you look at baptism As you're sitting in the pew, as you prepare your heart for that sacrament, what what will you be drawn to or who will you be drawn to? I pray it's to your superior high priest who through the sacrament and the promises visualized there reminds you and assures you of pardon. That he's willing to wash away your sins again. That he's willing to receive sinners whose hearts have never been washed with the blood. He's willing to do that now. Even apart from baptism. Hebrews 10 verse 12 points us to him again. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Then verses 21 and 22 of chapter 10 give us the real advantage of Christ as our high priest. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Behind baptism is a high priest, beloved. A high priest who is willing to receive sinners such as you are. There's no sinner too great, there's no sinner beyond the uttermost of the reach of his mercy this morning, there's no sinner too old. There's no sinner too young. The high priest, he calls you. He assures you that there is pardon with him and that when you come to him, there is forgiveness. That he may be feared. And so our assurance of pardon and forgiveness is not in feelings, it's not in what we do, it's not in a ceremony, but it's in Christ alone our superior high priest. It's grounded in a superior blood as we see in our second thought. What does the high priest carry in the Old Testament as he enters into the Holy of Holies? We saw in verse 7, verse 8, verse 7, not without blood. Not without blood. The blood of the sacrifice, the blood of an animal that was killed Once a year, year upon year, the blood of the Lamb was carried into the holy place, sprinkled on the the lid of atonement, which the high priest offered for himself and for the errors of the people. You see, blood was central to the atonement. Blood was central to reconciliation. Blood is central to assurance of forgiveness. Verse 22 of chapter 9 reminds us, Without shedding of blood is no remission. Blood was central to the old administration of the covenant, and so it's central to the new administration as well. But in the old administration of the covenant, that blood was insufficient. Tied to temporary ceremonies in a temporary tabernacle. Hebrews 10.4 states, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Though it was offered for sins, it could not remove the sins of the people. It had to be offered again and again to remind the people that there was forgiveness, not in the blood of the animal, but in the blood of the Lamb of God, in the blood of Christ. The Israelite, by faith, would see through that blood to see the blood of Christ. So where did that leave the Hebrews? Hebrews? As they receive this letter, as they read this, the blood of bulls and goats is not able to to atone for sin. Where is their hope of cleansing? Where is the assurance of pardon? In the superior blood of a superior high priest. That's the line that the writer to the Hebrews draws in Hebrews 9 verse 12. The Old Testament high priest went in with blood, the blood of an animal. But Christ... Entered into the tabernacle, into the holy of holies, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Personal blood. Christ's own blood He carries before God the Father. To reconcile sinners like you and me, he is the high priest, but he's also the lamb. Both of, these, both of these function together as he enters into the holy of holies. The Old Testament high priest never offered his own blood. Nor could the blood of animals ultimately atone for sin. They pointed weakly and faintly and temporarily toward the reality of the blood of Christ. The Old Testament high priest entered in year by year with blood. But Christ, with his own blood, with his costly blood, with his precious blood, has entered once to make atonement for sin, obtaining eternal redemption for us. And so, beloved, there is a blood, a blood that is superior. To all the animal blood of the Old Testament, it's the blood of Christ. And how does this superior blood relate to baptism? Baptism is a bloodless ceremony, yes. Bloodshed is no longer needed, either of animals or the blood of circumcision. Baptism tells us that a superior blood has been shed, it's done, it's finished. If the Old Testament pointed forward and assured the Israelites that blood was coming, the blood of Christ, then baptism looks back to the blood of Christ and assures us that blood has been shed. We don't have to shed blood anymore. We don't have to work our way to God. We're called to believe and to trust and to shelter under the blood of Christ. That's our shelter from the wrath of God It's the blood that assures us, the blood that has been shed. It's the blood that provides that foundation for us to rest on this morning, nothing else. You will not scrape into heaven by your own works. You'll not enter heaven upon the crest of the wave of a feeling of joy or peace or happiness. The only way you enter heaven behind Christ, the high priest, is by His blood. Offered once. And the water of baptism points us back to the blood, that superior blood. It's been offered once definitively to satisfy the wrath of God against sin and remove the great obstacle to communion with God. That blood is now in the heavens, offered there before God as the only acceptable sacrifice for sinners by which we're reconciled to God, an objective reality, the work of redemption upon which you can look this morning and be assured through baptism when it is administered. That the blood has been shed and it's through the blood that God is favorable towards sinners. It's through the blood of His Son that He looks and as He sees sinners, He sees them as cleansed and perfect. And He assures us of pardon and forgiveness as we come and we partake of that blood by faith. As we come to God this morning and we say, my only hope is tied to the blood this morning, that's where assurance of forgiveness comes. The fact that God has done it all through Christ. That He calls you and me to repent, and to believe again for the very first time. This is how baptism should function, as we see it administered, a beautiful picture, a beautiful visual of the gospel, a blood theology, pointing back to the blood of Christ. Shed on the cross, the ongoing reality that His blood is still effectively at work to cover our sins wholly and completely, because it's a blood that is superior to all the blood of the Old Testament. Think about it for a moment if we were to count up all the animals of the Old Testament that were sacrificed and killed, the amount of blood that was shed, it was ineffective to do what the blood of Christ has done, to cleanse and to assure us of pardon. What does Christ, our superior high priest, and His superior blood do for us? What does it do for sinners? They do several things. And Remember, we're going in behind baptism, looking at the realities that are pictured there. When baptism is administered, believers are assured of pardon. And so we do not end in the visual... We do not end in baptism, but we use the visual. We use the visual to bring us to the unshakable realities of this beautiful blood theology of the gospel. And why is that? Because it reminds us and assures us that redemption has been secured by Christ alone. The high priestly work of Christ and the shedding of His blood as it's pictured in baptism. As it's heralded forth in the gospel. Preaches to us that redemption is secured. It's definitive. Our text tells us. Verse 12. He entered in once into the holy place. Having obtained eternal redemption for us. Obtained. Secured, finished redemption. Something we can't add to, something we can't take away from, nor should we. In the gospel this morning is presented a foundation upon which your faith can rest. Upon which your heart can rest. A foundation of eternal redemption secured by Christ and in Christ. It assures you that there is always a way back to God through the blood, through the high priestly work of Christ. It's eternal redemption. Redemption that has effects now in in wiping away the ugly and dark reality of our sins, past, present, and future. But also a redemption that will bring us all the way to heaven, all the way to home with Jesus Christ. That's the reality of the redemption, redemption that He's secured. That's why we have baptism. That's why we have the Lord's Supper reminding us of the blood that was shed. To strengthen us from time to time, to bring us back to the word of promise, to bring us back to this unshakable reality of redemption that we have in Christ. We go from strength to strength until we are ushered into the glorious reality of this redemption. Sin will be done away. The blood secures our entrance, believer, into glory, our union with Christ, both now and forever, into the Holy of Holies, a place where no man can come apart from the blood, And the good news this morning is that there is a blood that is superior. There is a high priest who carries sinners near to his heart. He will bring us there through his definitive once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. Here's the foundation for a weary sinner to rest on this morning one who is plagued by the guilt of sin one who is wrestling with the question how do I know that I'm forgiven my friend look to the superior high priest to the superior blood to this eternal redemption that he's secured an objective reality outside of yourself that brings you into a A condition of peace with God. It's not merely there to look at this morning. It's not just there to wonder at and say, can it really be true? It is true. The Word of God tells us that it's true. And then when we're weak and feeble, baptism comes... From the hand of God, as it were, to remind us, we who are weak and feeble, that there's eternal redemption for us in the blood. An unassailable foundation for our faith to rest on. A visual reminder to bring you back to the promise that there's eternal redemption. And pardon for sin, cleansing for sin. So it secures our redemption, but it also works something in us. The conscience is purged. The Old Testament sacrifices could not purge the sinner from his sin, they were limited in their effects. It only reminded him that he had sin that needed to be purged. It pointed him to the reality of the blood of Christ that was coming, to the reality that his conscience could only be purged and cleansed by the shed blood of Christ. And the reality for us this morning, as we look back through baptism, through the visual, back to the promises of the gospel, is that there is a blood that has been shed that has real effects for us, the blood of Christ. Verse 13 and 14 of chapter 9 compare the effects of blood in the Old Testament and in the New. The blood of the Old Testament could only ceremonially cleanse for if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh. Externally, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The blood of Christ actually cleanses from sin. The sinner who comes this morning to Christ for cleansing will not be let down. Their sins will be washed away, will be cleansed, and they will stand before God as if they had never sinned. Regardless of who they are and what they have done and how they feel this morning. Why? It's only in the blood. The blood of the high priest and of the lamb. The blood of Christ. As you read further in Hebrews 10, the author quotes Jeremiah and includes these words from God Himself and their sins and iniquities, will I remember no more? Assurance of pardon comes in the measure that we are looking and resting in the blood of Christ this morning. Baptism signals to guilt-ridden sinners that there is hope in the gospel. It points you back to the blood of Christ, reassures you of the pardon that is found in that blood in the gracious and merciful high priest. Don't just wait for baptism. But when baptism is administered, don't hold back. Don't pretend that you're too sinful. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin, the Apostle John tells us in his epistle. The catechism reminds us to be watched with the blood of Christ is to receive of God the remission of sins freely. Freely, underline that. Not feelingly, but freely freely. Not what you can do, but freely. Not what you can contribute, but freely. By the grace of God, we receive the remission of sins for the sake of Christ's blood, the foundation upon which we rest and receive pardon, which he shed for us by his sacrifice upon the cross. Are you dirty this morning? Are you guilty this morning? Come and avail yourself of the blood. There is power in the blood to cleanse. Don't be so foolish just to place, your side out, place yourself outside of the, the reach and the power of this blood. What the Old Testament blood of the sacrifices could not do, Christ's blood can and really does. Test the promise this morning right here. When baptism is is administered and the, the water is sprinkled, test that promise again. The blood will hold. The blood will purge the guilty conscience and set you free from your sin. Do you want rest this morning from a tortured conscience? Not just for rest itself, but to glorify Christ and His high priestly work. Come to the blood. There's power in the blood to cleanse. There's power in the blood to secure eternal redemption that has been secured. There's one more thing that we need to understand this morning that the blood does. That Christ does as the high priest. He mobilizes the whole person. He mobilizes the whole person. What do you mean by that? There's redemption. There's reconciliation. But there's also a new motivation, isn't there? That when we, when we avail ourselves of the blood of Christ, as our hearts are cleansed from sin and we receive the assurance of pardon from God Himself through the word of the gospel and through the sacrament of baptism, through the visual gospel, this blood theology calls for, for living as well. Living out of that blood independence on that blood the blood of christ you notice in our text says it this way the blood of christ purges the conscience from dead works to serve the living god the blood of christ is effectual not just to cleanse us from sin not just to leave us where we are not just to accept us into favor with god but to to mobilize us to motivate us to renew our obedience to god renews our hearts through the Holy Spirit so that we are renewed with a new will, with new affections, with a new desire. If our hearts are cleansed from sin, it goes without saying that our desires are also cleansed. So we ought no longer to desire the sins that we once wallowed in and for which Christ died and for which His blood was shed. This truth is affirmed by what the Heidelberg Catechism says in Answer 70. The washing away of our sin also means to be renewed by the Holy Ghost and sanctified to be members of Christ, so that we may more and more die into sin and lead holy and unblameable lives. So when the gospel is preached, it's not just to set us right with God. It does that. It assures us of pardon, certainly. But it also calls us to new obedience, to live for God, to live for the Christ who gave His costly blood for us. So when baptism is administered, when the water is sprinkled on the forehead of the infant, it assures us of pardon, doesn't it? It also calls us to holiness. It calls us to holiness. It prompts us to new obedience. We don't leave church that Sunday and say, "Oh, the, the babies were so cute, and did you see them? The arms of their mothers?" Poor parents, they couldn't stop the baby from no." the blood the blood cleanses, doesn't it? The blood assures that our sins have been washed away. The blood reminds us that we are to respond with thankfulness and obedience to God to live for God with all that we are. So baptism is a sacrament as we've gone in behind the, 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 the visual picture to what it points, displays the blood theology of the gospel. Reassure sinners this morning that there's pardon with God through Christ. A place of hope for tortured souls. A place of restoration for backslidden souls. A place of reviving for demotivated souls. A place of pardon. For a sinner, points us back, reassures us of pardon through a superior high priest and a superior blood with superior effects. So, how will you view baptism the next time it's administered? Just another ceremony. or the place where God meets with you and reassures you of pardon by pointing you back to Christ, the great high priest, whose costly blood was shed for your sin, that you might rest in His eternal redemption, cleanse your conscience, and live for Him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord we are grateful for thy word how it points us to Christ we're grateful for the sacraments and how they point us back to Christ and how we need them again and again we're reminded again the sacraments are not placed above the preaching of the word but preaching of the word is central so Lord help us not merely to wait for the sacraments to be pointed back to Christ as we've heard thy word this morning that our listening would be mixed with faith we'd not only be hearers of the word but also doers laying hold of Christ for thou art most honored when sinners come, we confess it's counterintuitive. Thou art most honored and glorified when sinners come to lay hold of thee, and of thy blood. So reassure us once again of that pardon through thy word and through the sacraments. We do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.